This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. My name is Hal Hester. Welcome to Vine Life. Good to have you here this morning. Glad that you could be with us. Hey, before we get into the message this morning, uh, I've got kind of a, an important introduction I want to make to you. Uh, many of you may remember, uh, you know, uh, se- several months back, almost a year ago now, uh, we introduced to you uh, Joseph as our children's pastor. And uh, Joseph uh, has done a really phenomenal job, uh, done a great job with us. Uh, but you know, uh, it so happened that he and his lo- uh, lovely wife are uh, kind of going through some life transitions right now, and so uh, he has uh, turned things over to his assistant, who is now our children's pastor, and so uh, uh, and she has been doing a phenomenal job. We just haven't had a chance to like get her in here on a morning where she could like be free long enough to be able to introduce her to you. And so uh, it's long overdue, to be honest, but we want to uh, uh, take a moment and not only introduce her to you, but uh, pray over her. Uh, and also we just want to pray a blessing uh, over, uh, you know, Joseph as uh, he's uh, transitioned. He's going to still be teaching uh, back there, still be involved back there. Uh, but uh, as he's turning things over to Tara, uh, so, uh, Tara, would you and your family just come on up here and let's give them a warm welcome, shall we? And she comes with her whole crew, you know, like, uh, I mean, like, you know, so I, you, what, hey, what a bargain, right? No, no, seriously, they have been just a huge blessing. They've already been doing the job, and we just felt like it was one of those things that was really important for you to know what that transition was about, but also, you know, put a name and a face together. So uh, really appreciate the Hendries. They do a great job. They've been deeply involved back there from the beginning. And uh, so let's, uh, let's just take a moment and pray uh, over Tara right now. Father God, we want to thank you so much for her, for her family, for their commitment to this body and specifically to our children. And so, Father, we pray that as moving forward from here in making this known to the body, that we would be very intentional in lifting her up in prayer, uh, covering her, protecting them. Uh, We pray, Father, that they would have just every sense of blessing as they have put their hand to the plow and not look back, as they've given themselves uh, to this time and time again, but specifically as they're leading now in this area of ministry I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would your watch care over them for health and prosperity, that your just love and your mercy be upon them. I pray also, Father, for our children that will be under her direction and under her leadership. And Father, I pray that all those that are on the team, all those who are ministering alongside of her would sense that uh, blessing and covering of uh, her leadership and ministry. And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen them and strengthen this body through their ministry. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I always think it's really important. You know, I, I, I was on a church staff, very large church uh, elsewhere, and one of the things that used to drive everybody crazy is that like somebody would been in a new position for like years and then you would just find out that you know that they were that person like they just didn't ever announce those things and so we wanted to be sure and make sure to communicate with you and so uh, continue to lift them up in prayer if you will all right well continuing our series in the gospel of john you know, talking about eternal life and uh, looking at the way in which eternal life is revealed over and over again throughout this uh, series, throughout this text, uh, just uh, the gospel of John deeply embedded with the idea that life is more than just our biological life, but it is the sozo, it is the eternal, the experiential life where the Lord is pouring into us that we might have heaven within us. Not so much about getting into heaven, but getting heaven into all of us. Now this week, we are looking at probably one of the most uh, interesting and shocking turn of events 
We're looking at uh, the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter. Right there in the same text, uh, and and it it really gets you when you start to think about it in terms of these events and how they led to the crucifixion. Understanding in the middle of this that how God was using this and that God was not thrown off, that God understood the heart and the nature of people. uh, And so God in his infinite wisdom is not thrown off. And yet you and I look at this and you and I have to know that among denial and betrayal were two of the most painful events that anyone could experience, and Jesus experiences them both just as he's going to the cross. And, and here it is, in the midst of all of this, the, the best part is this, Jesus teaching about the centrality of loving one another as the real proof to whom we belong. Let's take a look with that said. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. John 13, beginning in verse 18. If you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version. Please follow along whatever translation's in your lap. That one's my favorite today. Let's take a look. John 13, 18. And we read these words. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned, motioned to him to ask him to ask of Jesus whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast. Or that he would give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. For by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus answered him, Will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. It's an extremely 
emotion-laden text. Really, over these last, these next few weeks, we're, we're dealing with, I mean, the moments before Jesus is going to be crucified. There's tremendous emotion. I, I think sometimes we just kind of read through it out of habit and we forget that real lives were involved in And we forget how much Jesus loved his disciples. That he knew what they were about to go through. They had no idea. Although he's given them repeated hints and even sometimes completely just unveiled, very clear, specific directives about his death and his resurrection They just haven't been able to hear it. You know, sometimes it's just the way things are, unfortunately, but that we have something so strongly in mind or we have such expectations in a particular way that even though people are telling us things, we just can't hear it. I don't suppose you've ever experienced that unless maybe you're married. That's another topic altogether, isn't it? But... Here we are, we pick back up, and they're at the dinner table. They, Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples. So we just, you know, that the, the emotion of the moment and the gravity of the situation is not lost on Jesus. It's not like God just does things and it doesn't affect the heart of Jesus, you know? I mean, uh, you know, I think sometimes we think that, we it's as if we think that God is passionless. And yet, the thing is that we're told that even his very motive for doing what he did in sending Jesus was because he so loved the world. Not because he was irritated with it. Not because he was disappointed in it. Not because he was so frustrated with it. He loved it. Do you you love the world like Jesus loved the world? Might it be our reason for how we respond to our friends, our neighbors, to the people we like and the people we don't like out of love? Is that why we read the headlines? Is that why We choose our friends because we so love the world. Hmm. It was his motive. So here we are at the table and Jesus, he loves all the people sitting at that table. Yes, even Judas. The relationship he's enjoyed over the past three years is about to change dramatically. And to that end, it tells us he's deeply troubled in his spirit. He knows how things are going to radically change. And so it's important that you and I don't like kind of over-spiritualize this and forget that Jesus, although fully God, is also fully man. And that just knowing the outcome and the future doesn't mean that there is not emotion and impact. That Judas' betrayal doesn't hurt. That Peter's denial doesn't hurt. So here you are in this moment and you know that you're about to be separated from them in a way that it'll never be the same. Although your presence will be with them, though you will always be for them, though you will never leave them or forsake them, there is a real change in the situation. It's just not exactly the same, is it? You and I have this confidence that we dwell with Jesus, that he dwells with us if we belong to him. And yet it is Significantly different than, say, who you had lunch with yesterday or the day before. It's a whole different experience, isn't it? One of the things that I find so intriguing as we look at the scene of the table is the proximity of Judas to Jesus. 
there's this serious last effort on Jesus' part to show kindness to Judas in spite of what's happening. He's still expressing love to him and that he is seated to one side of him. To one side is John and to the other side is Judas. Not Peter, Judas. He's, he's brought him close. Even in these last moments, there's this, this effort on his part to express the kindness, the mercy. He has every opportunity at this moment to change his heart. You see, God will get his will done one way or another, whether Judas does it or someone else. And at that moment, though he is set to betray Jesus, he is leaning against him. They're sharing food together. And then as, John, as Peter asks the question of John and John asks of Jesus, I want you to notice what he does. Please, like, think about what's happening here. He, he tears the piece of bread and he sops it and he gives it to him to eat. Can I just ask you a question? Who's the last person that you fed Who do we feed? Have you torn off a piece of your sandwich or your bread and just given it to a total stranger recently or someone that you really didn't like? You know, actually, you know, one of the things I know is I can usually tell when a boy and girl are interested in one another because they will like give each other food and like feed each other in ways that you go, wow, that looks awfully intimate. I think that's more than a friendship, right? We don't just feed anybody. I, I don't just randomly go around feeding strangers. And, uh, you know, it, in fact, I, one of the things I remember growing up in the Catholic Church and they would like give you the wafer and, and they would give you the opportunity. You could like have communion served in your hand like this or you could let them put it in your mouth. And I remember the first time I saw someone do this and I went, yeah, baby, because it was just a little weird having somebody stick a piece of food in my mouth. Who do you let? feed you? Who do you share food with in an intimate manner like that unless they are close? Jesus has spent the last three years with Judas. Judas has done all the same things. He was there at the feeding of the 5,000. That means as they were tearing that bread apart, handing it to people, it was multiplying in his hands. When he sent out the 12 and they were casting out demons, when they were forgiving sins, when they were healing people, guess what Judas was doing? What was Judas doing? Everything that all the other apostles were doing. When you spend three years living with someone, can I also point out something to you? Although John is giving us the hint that he was stealing from the bag and doing all these other things, Please note, nobody went, whenever he said, someone's going to betray me, nobody went, probably Judas. They all went, what? Someone among our intimate friendship, someone that we've been doing life with, someone who's been casting out demons, healing the sick, one of us? Who could it possibly be? Nobody said, well, clearly it's Judas. In fact, what does Jesus say? I'm telling you this now so that you will know I am who I am, but also so that you will know that I knew. And then it's in that context, once he has sent him on his way, and we're told that they, they, they're, they're like thinking, well, he must clearly, he, he's taking care of the money bag. He's going to go buy something else for the banquet. We got more to go. You know, we got more of the festival to go here yet, and, and he's probably just going to get something, or maybe he's going to go help the poor. But no one said, 
oh, well, clearly the reason he's leaving the table early is because he's going to go betray Jesus. Now, part of that is because they probably would have gotten up and given him a whooping. But the biggest reason is simply because they didn't know. In the midst of all that intimacy, they didn't ask questions. Why is Judas sitting right there next to Jesus? Why is Jesus sopping bread and giving it to him? Such an intimate act, and especially from the host of the banquet. Just a sense of honor to his right and to his left, right? There's a very special sense in all of this, and in the act of all of this, it seems that even John didn't pick up on the clue once he asked. It only hits him later. And isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't call Judas out? What does he do when he knows that Judas is going to betray him? He draws him close, and he still loves him. He's still making every opportunity for him to change his heart. You know, I, I remember one time uh, when I was in Bible college and one of my professors, uh, you know, was, was talking to us about loving your neighbor and things like that. And, and one of the people was saying, yeah, but, you know, you got to make sure and let them know what's right and what's true and, you know, was kind of like taking that attitude. And I remember him saying, you know, because I don't think I've ever seen anybody get baptized with their hide nailed to the wall by any of you. That the demonstration that Jesus called for when he said, and this is how they will know, this is how they will know that you are my disciples your love for one another. He says it in the crucible of real life, right? I mean, he's not just saying it theoretically. He's not like, you know, talking to some people and saying, you know, well, it would be a good idea philosophically. You know, I mean, we all ought to just really love people or whatever. No, he's saying it in the midst of actually walking it out. Because out of this intimate group, there are two people who will openly wound him. But let's be honest, the others don't do any better, right? I mean, they run away. I'm sure you feel loved and supported when people scatter and run away from you, right? Anybody? You just feel loved and supported when people go running away in the other direction and leave you holding the bag. I'm sure that just builds your confidence, right? You know, I can't prove it. But I, I tend to think that Judas probably thought he was doing the right thing. Right? I mean, like, you know, I mean, he's been in the midst of all this. I, I, I just, I wonder if maybe he thought somehow he was kind of forcing Jesus' hand to, to finally seize the day, seize the moment. Uh, maybe in his deep commitment to his own theological perspective. I mean, that's the problem with Peter, right? It's not that Peter doesn't love Jesus. I mean, the, the question, though, that Jesus asks him in the end, do you love me? And the commission to feed his sheep, you know, three times in the same process of restoring the relationship is because despite of his, his magnanimous declarations, I will never leave you. I would never, I will fight, I will go to the death for you. What we find out about Peter is, I will absolutely die for my theological viewpoint. I will die on the hill of my politics, just not for you. I mean, many times we think that's what we're saying when we say, I will die on this hill, or I will die on that hill, that it's a commitment to Jesus. But in earnest, we see in Peter the reality is, no, it was a commitment to 
what he thought. It's a commitment to what he believed. But it was not actually the commitment to love Jesus through thick and thin. It was a commitment to love his ideas. In other words, it was, well, it was a commitment to himself. I believe Peter believed wholeheartedly in what he said that day. I just think oftentimes that we fail to separate out what's really a commitment to a person and what's really a commitment to an idea. And he was absolutely sold out for his ideas, for his politics and his theology. But what he did not understand was, and this is how they will know that you are my disciples, that you will love one another. It's easy to say, I love the church until the church hurts you or offends you or betrays you. Let me redefine church for you. The person sitting next to you. It's easy to talk about an institution, but when we're talking about the church, we're actually not talking about an institution. The government may define church as a 501c3 organization. The scripture defines the church as the person sitting next to you. Oh, and uh, in you. Right? This is how the world will know that you are my disciples, in the way that you love one another. It's interesting that he says this thing right in the middle of all of this. He says, now a new commandment I give you. Wait a minute, Jesus, I'm like, I've read the Old Testament. (laughs) Yeah, it's not new. Right? I mean, it, like, it's all riddled through the entire Torah over and over again. I mean, the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as... So what's new? What's new? What's new is because he defines what that actually means. The command to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, John said it another way. And this is how we know what love is. That Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. The definition of loving God is not how much you dance at worship. It's not how many scripture passages you've memorized. It's that when the world looks at you interacting with another Christian and they see love, the kind of love that would lay its life down for one another. Not that tolerates one another, not that goes to the next church the next time I get irritated or somebody says something I don't like. Well, I'm never going back there. They offended me. Well, that's the way to show the love of Jesus. No, I, we're, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a really pure Christian. I can't tolerate all those hypocrites. I'm just going to stay home by myself. You literally cannot fulfill that command and do that. It is literally like saying, Jesus, I'm going to show you how much I love you by being completely disobedient to your, one of your last statements on the earth where you defined discipleship, you defined belonging to you by this one thing. And then we dig into Corinthians and Paul is talking about love. Everybody loves the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, it keeps no record of wrongs, it's not self-serving. And you realize, he's not talking about your wedding. I know we read it at every wedding. 
But he's actually talking about when he says love is not self-serving and keeps no record of wrongs. He's talking about you and relationship to everyone else around you at church. Uh, you don't know, but my church is full of hypocrites. Yes, and you're the biggest one of all. No, not the biggest. I am. Because I'm up here preaching about it. See, within every one of us, in our fallen nature, is this, this in, inherent desire to preserve ourselves and protect ourselves at all costs, even betraying others. Throwing them under the bus, we call it nowadays. We preserve ourselves. That's normal, sinful humanity. And then there's this call to biblically, authentically love the brethren to the degree that we would literally lay down our lives for one another rather than betray one another. And he modeled it. Right? In the crucible of fire, right there, he modeled it. He didn't say it on the hillside and then turn around and like, Smoke Judas out. He walked it out. At the beginning of this year, we did this 40-day spiritual adventure for Lent on loving one another. We talked about the Greek word alalelos that is used there to signify one another. And, and the series began right here in that verse where Jesus laid down the standard of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But you know, I don't think it fully hit me what that meant, even after that 40-day you know, series and all the things I wrote about it, is that Jesus had said it right in the midst of walking it out like that. You should love as he loves. And I had to ask myself the question, so what does my love for others say about Jesus' love? When I say, I can't love like that, I just don't like them enough. You don't know what they did to me. If our love is to be as Jesus loved, are we actually telling people what we, that maybe we actually doubt his love for us? I think there's some of that in there. I, I really do. I think that though we say it really freely, it's something that we sing in songs, it's something that we, we talk about all throughout Christianity. I, one of the things I can't help but notice sometimes in the way we pray about things and the way we worry about things, I'm convinced that part of it is I, I'm not sure that we believe Jesus loves us like he loved Judas and like he loved Peter. We see the exceptions. We, see, we know our failings. We know all the reasons why he shouldn't love us. And we forget that he did love Judas. And he did love Peter. We know he loved Peter because then he, he restores him gently and, and, and he, he, he approaches him and he asks him and invites him back into the same place where he had been before, even, even more so, you know, to lead the people of God. I mean, there's this, this great calling, but we never get that opportunity with Judas. Judas, in a moment of worldly sorrow, destroys himself. And so you and I will never know what Jesus might have said to him had he lived. I cannot help but believe that he would have offered him the same thing he offered Peter because 
Here's what I know about denial and betrayal. We're using two different words, but we're speaking of one reality. Because when people deny they know you, if that's not betrayal, then I guess I don't know what betrayal is. We just don't want to call Peter a betrayer. It's easy to call Judas the betrayer. He's dead, right? He hung himself. You know, we just look at him. Ah, look, it's his fault. But Peter, like Peter's an apostle. He's like, you know, he rocks everything and acts, you know, we're like watching what he does. And so nobody, like, well, we kind of want to soft pedal that. But the truth is, They both sold him out. And then Jesus says to us that our single greatest tool for expressing the kingdom, of evangelizing and everything, is the way that we love one another. If we love one another like, Jude, like Jesus loved Judas and Peter at the table, Why is it that we want to dispute that? Why is it we always try to find some way to avoid that conversation? We talk about all the theological arguments for why we can't do this or do that. And Here's what I find intriguing. That in one of the most ongoing public displays of evangelism over the last hundred years where we have done more to market Christianity, more events. We have, our, we have radio stations and music industry and books being cranked out. Like, like There's like hundreds and hundreds of books being cranked out every year. And yet here's the thing, in the middle of this huge public display, American Christianity has lost serious, serious ground through event-driven evangelism. We have shrunk. Even as the population has exploded, And so we invite people to big events and we entertain them, but you know, there's always better entertainment outside the church. The truth is that what you and I have to offer most is relationship. And what kind of relationship? According to Jesus, the kind that lays down your life for your brother. The kind of love that can forgive two guys like Peter and Judas. The kind of relationship that instead of seeing them as enemies, saw them as lost souls. There's no digger, deeper dig than betrayal, but there is no greater love than to lay one's life down for another. And so while there's plenty of verses that tell us to love our neighbor and to be kind to those who are far off. And I'm not advocating that we retreat into church ghettos and hide from the world. What I'm saying is, is that we're called to a both and kind of love. See, part of how I love the world is honestly to love the people in the church enough that the church becomes a safe place to land. If the church isn't safe, look in the mirror. If you can't find anything nice to say about the church, look in the mirror. And so part of loving the church is having enough integrity, though, to not let us, to not let one another look down on the world and instead, 
to call on one another to love the world as Jesus loves the world and gave himself for it. Can I point out too that Jesus wasn't disingenuous or just looking the other way when Judas went to act. As Judas comes back in the act of betrayal and he comes up and he's going to hug and kiss his rabbi, the kiss of friendship, the kiss of of an intimate relationship, right? That's not what a kiss is for. And he uses that kiss to betray him in that moment and Jesus looks him in the face and says, Is it with a kiss that you betray the Son of Man? So we're not talking about just looking out the other way and ignoring everything. We're talking about recognizing things, knowing what is, and loving people anyhow. We're talking about knowing who betrays you and that you choose to forgive them And if they keep acting the same way, you guard yourself, but you don't stop loving, praying. I know that's hard, isn't it? Me too. I will confess in this moment, I can't do it. And neither can you. It is by the transformative power of the Holy Spirit that I find the ability, the opportunity, the wherewithal to love those who hurt me, who betray me. Not in my own strength. I promise you, if you keep trying to do it in your own strength, you will find the same futility that you find about reading your Bible every day or praying every day or whatever else. As long as you keep trying to do it in your own strength. I mean, that is kind of the core message, isn't it, of the Scripture, is that you and I look throughout the, the Old Testament and we see all these things and we realize whether there's one rule, do not touch that tree, duh, one rule. You had one rule. And then there's the hundreds of rules, and they couldn't do that either. But whether it's hundreds or one, you can't. That's why you and I need Jesus, right? And if you need Jesus, so does the person next to you, and and the person next to them, and those people you don't like, and those people who don't dress right, don't vote right, don't think right. Like pumpkin spice? No, I'm getting. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. My my daughter loves pumpkin spice, so I did that just for her. Anyhow, um, listen. <laughs> Ultimately, loving God means loving who. And what God loves. And so by the power of His Spirit, I I love the world. It doesn't mean I love the things of the world. It doesn't mean I love bad behavior. It doesn't mean that I ignore, that I don't care about. Uh, It doesn't mean that I don't ever resist. It doesn't mean I go along, agree with, vote for, pay for, I'm not talking about being a doormat. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, I love the world the way God so loved the world and gave His life for it. And so it's important that as I love the world that I consider what real love looks like. And if it's nothing more than just being polite to people in public, that's a pretty shallow love. So I love the world and I love the church. Can I tell you, in my 35 years of ministry, I have had my life threatened credibly by church people. 
I can remember when we went through a series of time where my wife literally papered over the windows because she just couldn't stand to look at the church building that we were living in the parsonage. I can remember people praying for the death of my youngest son to teach me a lesson. Please tell me about all the ways the church has betrayed you. Please. I'm not making light. Those things hurt. You know why they hurt? Because we love. We love the body of Christ and we lay our lives down for one another. That is the definition of Christianity. And so I'm sorry when people hurt your feelings. I really am. Because it still hurts my feelings too. I'm sorry when people say things mean to you. I'm sorry when they don't come through with what they promised. I'm sorry that they weren't there when you needed them. But there's no qualifier. Jesus didn't say, love them until. He sat at the table with he who would betray him, and he loved him. So I love the world, and I love the church, but I refuse to conform to either. Rather, we are called upon to be transformed, not conformed, transformed by the love of God, by the presence of His Spirit, by the renewing of our minds so that we can know and do His good, perfect, and pleasing will. And that includes loving one another. You know, the reality is everyone here has betrayed Jesus at some point. Every one of us has needed redemption, forgiveness, hope, healing. Everyone in this room has been a Judas or a Peter. And likewise, everyone in this room has been loved by Him. Let's stand together, shall we? So how do we love like Jesus? As I said, the truth is you can't, but through the power of His Spirit, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. It's not a bench press verse. It's actually about I can do the things that I say I cannot do. That by His power, by His Spirit at work in me, I can lay my life down. By His power, His Spirit at work within me, I can love my neighbor as myself. In the midst of that, that's what it means that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so, you know, our invitation really centers around that whole thing. If you're wrestling with what it means to love my neighbor, if it, you're wrestling with what it means to love the church, maybe that's even the hardest part. It's, sometimes it's easier to love your neighbor because you just know that they're not walking with Jesus and, and you can just like overlook a lot of things, you can forgive a lot of things, but my that person at church is supposed to know better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they are. And so, as we ask the prayer team to come up here in just a moment, let me ask you the question, has loving the church been a priority? Not just something that you kind of nod your head and agree, but has it been a priority? Is there energy, effort, resources on your part spent in loving the body, loving the people next to you, loving the unlovable? Time, energy, money, a priority. 
And how do I keep growing in love? And my, my response to you is, is that's something that you and I do through prayer and through uh, regular spiritual discipline, developing and growing uh, in our relationship with him, not because we have to, not because it's you know, going to keep you out of something, but except that it, look, the reality is that you and I can't do it. And so we press in through those things, those experiences, through those uh, encounters with God so that we would learn and become like Him through the power of the Spirit. Jesus, today we are gathered here in Your name with the understanding that You loved us so much that You laid Your life down for us. It is clear in the cross that You loved us. But for many of us today, it's the first time that we understood that You loved Judas. And we see your clear and conscious act to show him and to demonstrate to him love. Even in the final moments. Even as you spoke those words to him and gave him the opportunity to back away, to repent, to change his heart and mind. And so Lord, we're asking you to move in us and to empower us that we might love like you love. To love the world like you love, to love our neighbor like you love, to love the body of believers like you love. And so we ask, would you send your spirit among us and stir up a deep passion for one another in this body and for the larger body of Christ even, even for the people who think different like, than, I, than we do, that baptize different, that uh, maybe worship differently than we do, uh, but they have given themselves to you. Maybe they uh, believe a little different about this or that doctrine or whatever, but we, we recognize, Lord, that you gave your life for them and that we have been called to love one another so that the world may know. And so, Lord, would you, would you stir up the fires of revival and renewal in the body of Christ by teaching us to love one another so that there might be a safe place for the lost to be found. And, Lord, for those who find themselves this morning afar off, do not know you, do not have a relationship with you, I pray that even in this moment that they would join together with us in the hope and in the confidence that he who begins a good work in us will see it to completion and that you will teach us to love one another. And we pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Prayer team, you want to go ahead and come on up? you need prayer, please come on up and get some prayer. Otherwise, let me encourage you to get your kids from Kids Church. God bless you. I hope to see you next week. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.